0: So, I come from Finland. I work um, in the biggest uh, independent think tank in the Nordics, called Demos Helsinki. We are a hybrid consultancy and a think tank. So, we do uh, research, but also projects, uh, like consulting projects for the private sector, third sector, and for the governments all over the world. And um, so, today, I will talk to you about the universal basic income experiment we have done in Finland. This is one example of how democracies can be reinvented and strengthened now and in the future. Uh, So we have been working for the Finnish government to create the experimentation model behind this this experiment. Obviously it's the Finnish government that has really then done the experiment. what I try to do today is also to step, make a step forward from the experiment itself, but try to look at what universalism as a concept uh, would mean for the future of democracy. Before going to this, I will see where we currently are and how we have come here. So, here you can see Uh, Graph. This is from the Pew Research Center Global Attitude Survey in 2015. And it shows that people in, in Europe and in North America somehow do not believe that the next generation will be more prosperous than the current one. Whereas people in Latin America, Africa and Asia still believe that their children will be financially better off than they are themselves. So what does this mean why are we so pessimistic about the future? Have we lost hope in Western societies? I believe that there are two developments that are behind this. They are changing our way of life fundamentally. They are climate change and the rapid digitalization of life and maybe this conference that we are here today in this room is a good example of this. I think the motto of of this conference was exploring complexity in a digital world. So basically everything we've been talking about here today and yesterday is revolved around these two uh, phenomena that we are seeing. But maybe the most important question is not that we are here this week and we are thinking about these phenomena but who are missing so who are those people that do not come come to these kind of conferences who do not feel that these are important things that are actually changing their identities so who are we missing and how does their world look like I think this has something to do with the divisions we are seeing in most western societies, well, inside and also between the societies. So there are contradictions between these some kind of techno-utopians and then people that live in places that are somehow left behind. We have also seen that these divisions are manifesting themselves politically in in many European countries, in the US, uh, why not in in Brazil uh, with the current uh, government in there? However, this is not entirely new to us. We have actually been here before. Let me explain what I mean. We have to go back to the industrial revolution in the 18th and 19th centuries. So we usually remember the upward curve of the industrial revolution, uh, we know that the technological advances of that time increased productivity and efficiency um, to an unprecedented level. And this brought economic growth that brought uh, higher living standards and wealth to most people. However, what we don't usually remember is that during this period we also went through a phase where the gross domestic product was already growing, but workers' real wages weren't. So this is the pink area in the, in the picture. This grass so shows how the real wages started to rise with the gross pro- domestic product only in the 1840s. And this is a... an um, a a phase that the historians call the Engels pause. Now, I want you to imagine yourself in here, in Gin Lane. This is what the consequences of the Engels pause pretty much looked like. So, Gin Lane is a well-known um, slum area in industrializing London in the 18th century. Many things were different then, 250 years ago. The most descriptive thing of the life is maybe that workers were drinking gin from pints to be able to survive and go to work the next day. So think about that. How has the life been if you need litres and litres of bulls to recover? Also, if we look at British literature from that time, it's focused on describing the miserable life in the slums of London, Um, and yet this was a period when productivity and wealth were exponentially growing for the first time in human history. Now the question is, are we witnessing the same kind of situation currently? There seem to be too many matching elements. So we can see that both then and now Median wages and living standards are stagnant. Income inequality has climbed. There are remarkable new technologies that are revolutionizing the current economic structures and people have negative anticipations of the future, as you've seen in the first picture I showed. When we look back to history, we can see that solutions to these problems were not easy. But we can also see that it is the industrial revolution that gave rise to most of the structures our current societies are based on. By this I mean that in the 19th century, all these new institutions started to emerge to solve the problems I've just described. So these institutions are these, you know, small, easy things such as social security systems, welfare state, primary education for all, urban planning, trade unions or representative democracy. Today we seem to take these democratic institutions for granted, but actually it was not easy to come up with these during the industrial era. They were uh, very radical and unthinkable new social innovations that the people during that time invented. Now, we are familiar with these industrial institutions. Many of them have been success stories that that have brought us wealth and well-being. But as the world has changed in 250 years, we believe that these institutions are not fit for purpose anymore. Currently, we are seeing the emergence of what we call the bridging institutions. They are in the middle, in the picture. They are slightly edited versions of the industrial institutions, such as crow co-produced public services, open data initiatives or universal basic income. But the most interesting thing is that we don't have yet in place which are the actual next era institutions? They're not just adjusted versions, but something ca- that can solve the problems and challenges we are facing today. So they must be somehow new and radical and not just incremental changes to the previous system. However, the only challenge is not inventing the institutions but also the time. If we are in a similar situation as during the 19th century, we are in a rush. This time we don't want to lose two or three generations and 50 years to the Gin Lane, but we need to speed up the transformation. Now I'll give you an example of what the next era institutions I have been now talking talking about at a very abstract level what these could actually be in practice so i come from finland and we have done this basic income experiment there during 2017 and 2018 and we, as Demos Helsinki, have been working with the Prime Minister's office to build the experimentation model behind it, as I, as I already told you. Um, and there have also been problems in implement, um, implementing that, so it has not been um, just a huge success, but there are many sides to the experiment. I will g- come back to this soon. The, the point is that um, we believe that this experiment can be a start for something that can later become an extra institution or a whole uh, new social contract. So the Basic Income experiment was a nationwide pilot that that started in 2017. It lasted for two years. It included 2000 randomly selected uh, participants who were unemployed Finns in, in an eastern region of Finland. It guaranteed an income income of of about $600 per month for them, and uh, the trial group received this income even if they were working or received some other income during the period. There was also a control group of 5,000 people who continue to receive their unemployment benefits normally. So basically what this means is that we gave free money for a certain group of people, and then we're just seeing what happens. Um, The main results of the experiment were that employment didn't increase, but people felt generally healthier and happier. One thing we've been criticizing is that the main focus of the experiment was to see if en- universal basic income increases the level of employment. So this is what the, how the government uh, defined the experiment. Employment didn't increase. So when they were seeing the trial group and the control group, the, the levels were not that different. So the experiment in that way didn't work out as the government would have wanted. However, what did change was that the trial group perceived their health and stress levels to be significantly better than the control group. Also, volunteering and unpaid work increased during the experiment. So it seems that people were uh, Thinking or were feeling uh, more happy during the period, but this, this didn't end up in uh, like in the monetized economy or in the financial uh, system as a uh, way of traditional employment, as the government would have wanted. So we have actually, after this experiment, started to um, kind of took a step back and go back to the bigger picture. So now we've, we've um, had the experiment, we've seen that it is one, maybe tiny solution, the first step, but it's not enough. It doesn't resolve the problems of the Western societies with aging population and uh, scarce public resources and so on. So we've stepped step back and we've been looking into what universalism actually means today, from a larger point of view. Here you can see, uh, these are currently the three different initiatives of universalism that we have uh, all around the world. First is the universal basic income that is now familiar to you. It is about providing financial flexibility in the gig economy. The second one is the universal basic services initiative, It has been discussed especially in the UK. And the main idea is that it provides access to capabilities organized through public uh, institutions. And the third model, what we are actually most interested in right now, is the universal basic assets. It includes elements from both of the previous ones, but it goes further to renewing the... Structures of ownership and giving people access to new types of assets as well. These can be uh, better understood through two narratives. So, the first one is the income narrative. It assumes the primacy of cash flow, which means basically work and income you get from that. So, the UBI experiment obviously goes to this category. But we think that it seems that nowadays having a steady cash flow, cash flow doesn't actually guarantee success in life so instead we need a multitude of assets which always which cannot always be purchased for money so the digital turn has actually changed the systems of production so that not all assets are available for money or are even um, produced with money. This brings us to the second narrative, which perceives people as holders of different types of assets, money being just one of them. The benefit of the asset narrative is that it acknowledges the diversity of assets contributing to people's well-being. We should not only be talking about how to best organize public services, but rather broaden the discussion to include private assets and commons as well. So this is the uh, the circle in the middle. We are we are claiming that we should find a way to discuss and redefine how these different types of assets are um, um, how, how how we um, divide them in the society. So this universal basic assets thinking makes it possible to think of new models and solutions for producing and owning valuable assets. It's not tied to the current political agenda and it can change over time. Even if there are some assets in the current economic system that we don't give value currently, this makes it possible to um, give them value in the future. So, in other words, it's not about who owns what, but how to give access to to the assets that are important to, to people. It is a question of what we want to make universal or accessible to everybody. Here in emoji language, so is it money, is it um, services, or is it assets in a broader perspective? This asset narrative may, may feel a bit difficult to grasp. It's not impossible, though as we already have these and other examples in place. So the new universal assets can be, for example, a 3D printer or tools that you can borrow from the library, link kiosks in New York offering free Wi-Fi, free public public transport, as, as they have done in Estonia, or open data provided by the city. Universalism has been the key to success in the Nordic countries during the 20th century. It has been, um, we think, the key to have the sense of belonging in most people in the society. So now we have to be as brave as our parents and grandparents have been to invent the universalism of the 21st century. To hack democracy, as Rafaela said, we need solutions that unite people, strengthen the feeling of mutual trust, encourage active participation and this way build a fairer society. And we think that reviving the concept of universalism could be one way to achieve this. One thought I would like to leave with you today is that more important than talking about if we should give people 500 or 1000 euros per month is that universalism can be a way to restore hope and fairness and strengthen democracy for the next era if you want to know more about our work check these two publications Universalism in the next era and this vision for public sector innovation can be found in our website demoshelsinki.FI. I'll still be here for over lunch so if you're interested in these teams, come talk to me and let's have a chat. Thank you very much.